So in this topic, we are looking at the doctrine of spiritual growth. Now, something to keep in mind here, sick sheep don't reproduce. Right? The church is made up of sheep. But unhealthy sheep, sick sheep, sheep with problems that they're not finding any answers for, they don't reproduce. You can tell them all you want. You need to make disciples. You need to be evangelistic. You need to share your faith. Who's going to share their faith? You know, my life's imploding. We're having trouble in our relationships. I'm not telling anybody about Jesus. Sick sheep don't reproduce. Healthy sheep do. And that comes from life on life, helping people, because everyone's fine on Sunday. Have you noticed that? Everyone's fine on Sunday, but during the week, wow, when people call, they're not doing so fine. So this is the doctrine of spiritual growth. And first comes salvation. So you don't have this in your notes, but just a, a good reminder that we want to make sure when we're ministering to people, have they trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior? So you'd want to talk about who God is, man, a good biblical view of man, the fall in Genesis 3, what happened to Adam and Eve, and then That set up the whole stage there for the coming Messiah, for Jesus, right? Fully God, fully man, fully righteous. And then what he accomplished on the cross and resurrection on behalf of those who would believe in him. And then believe and keep believing. Repent and believe. Turn from living for self to trust in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. And it involves your thinking. This is all aspects of the heart. You agree with that knowledge and you turn from trusting in yourself and and you're following sin and engaging in sin and seeking to follow Jesus now by faith. Just a good reminder of the gospel. Are we dealing, as best as we know, with a believer? You'll see that diagram again. Uh, So when we were unsaved, we lived for the advantage of ourselves. That's what we did, 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Christ died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So very important, that's who we once were, living only for ourselves, everything that orbited around us and unbelief towards God. That's why they're called unbelievers. They reject God, they are hostile in their mind towards God, they suppress the truth of righteousness And aren't we thankful for God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now we're a new creature in Christ, a new man. And our thoughts, affections, and choices now revolve more around, and should, around Jesus. We wish it was more so every day, and hopefully there's growth there, but it's not perfect yet. But it's more and more about Jesus, less and less about us. And then that, we're to be growing in our faith towards Jesus. Christ. All right, again, that's just salvation. And now, this new man, now we need to be growing in our faith. This is the doctrine of spiritual growth. How do we grow in our faith? In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter said, now grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Grow. Keep growing. 
So I want to begin here. This is in the intro. Just making sure we're clear on what justification is, because we're going to be taking a look, most of the seminar, uh, this seminar, on, on sanctification. We don't want to get justification and sanctification confused, but we don't want to separate them either. There's a real danger of separating them. You can get into some ditches. So justification, it's the event where God declares us just with an alien righteousness that we receive from Jesus at conversion. That's what God has done for us. We didn't bring anything to the table of justification except our sin. We bring our sin. He declares us just when we trust in Jesus. He declares us just. And because we have been given an alien righteousness, actually it's the righteousness of Christ that's been put to our account. And he's taken away our sin. That's justification. Now, sanctification. You should have some of this there in your notes. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man. Now, you're going to hear some, oh, we're in there. We weren't really in there at all with justification because God did it. This has both of us, God and man. It's a progressive work that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification is the process of changing and growing in Christ. This is what God is doing in us. Remember, justification is what God is doing for us. That's what he did for us. He declared us just. Now he's working in us. But we don't just sit passively still. And that brings me to the point of when you're dealing with sanctification, two books have been written on sanctification, Five Views books. You familiar with Five Views critical thinking books? They typically look at this uh, across the spectrum of evangelicalism, and they say, I see, uh, we see several groups of people who hold to different views on something, whether it be on eschatology, the end times, uh, views of the church. This is views of how a person grows and changes to be like Jesus. There are two books written a year apart, And there are five views in here, five views in here, and between the two of them, there are seven different views on how to grow and change and be more like Jesus. Now, not all seven views are right. God didn't stutter. Truth isn't plural. Truth is singular. The Holy Spirit said there's one way to grow and change. We have the problem. God's word, the spirit, did not have a problem on how to grow and change. We've got the problem. So in these seven views, and uh, just to mention real quickly, the Wesleyan view, that's John Wesley, not Charles, his brother, the Pentecostal view, the Keswick view, I'm very familiar with that uh, from the school where I went. The Augustinian dispensational view, the Reformed view, the Lutheran view, 
and the contemplative or mystical view. So seven different views. And then the authors uh, who believe that the different views critique each other. So it's interesting to read, but it can be very confusing. Now, one of those, which one is from the Holy Spirit? Because I don't have to spend the rest of my time looking at the others. Well, one of those is the biblical view. Otherwise, you have to say there's an eighth view. Now, there's one that is, and it's in both those books. And they don't call it the biblical view. They call it a different view. It's just the biblical view. It's just called something different. I'll get to that in a minute. So that's what we're, we're dealing with, depending on your denomination, how you were raised, is what view you may have um, you know, accepted and embraced. So we're going to take a look at just a very quick uh, look at this area of sanctification. How are we... Uh, sanctification actually means to be set apart unto holy ends. Holy ends. God has set us apart to be holy. Now there in your notes, you have uh, these listed in columns. Sanctification differs from justification. So to compare the two. In justification, it's more about our legal standing. Remember that gavel? It's a legal declaration. God makes it. He, legally, he declares us just. Sanctification is an internal condition. And our justification, it's once for all time at the moment of conversion. In sanctification, we're progressing, continuous. In justification, it's entirely God's work. But in sanctification, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. In justification, it's perfect. And it's perfect in all of his children. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been perfectly justified through Christ. You don't grow in that. It's just a legal declaration. Boom. One forensic, forensic declaration. It's not at what God says at the end of your life of good works, as the Roman Catholics believe. It's at conversion. In sanctification, uh, it's not perfect. At least not in this life. And in justification, it's the same in all Christians. But in sanctification, it's greater in some than others. Some are more sanctified than others. Some have grown more in Christ than others. You have the babes in Christ. You have those who are mature in Christ. So that's comparing the two. You can read more about that. Even Wayne Grudem has an excellent uh, treatment on justification and sanctification in his systematic theology book. Now, we're going to look at the different stages of sanctification. I want to have you open to Philippians chapter 1. Some of you know this verse by memory, but you can almost see all three stages of sanctification in one verse. Philippians 1, verse 6. And Paul says here, the Spirit through Paul, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. So again, that, that's a verse that's very common to all of us. The first is the, the work that he began. That would be positional sanctification. He positionally set us apart towards holiness in Christ, positionally. Now, we're not there completely yet, but positionally it began at conversion. And God saved us. If you want another verse for this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is one of the most hope-filled verses when it's talking about all these life-dominating sins. And verse 9 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. That's life-dominating and slaving sins there. And verse 11, And such were some of you. Wow. You mean I'm not still one? Nope. See the difference between a drunkard and an alcoholic? An alcoholic, according to our world standards, is you always be one. You'll just be a sober one. But if you use the words that Scripture teaches us, the Spirit has taught us, that it's a drunkard and it's sinful, there is great hope. You don't always have to be a drunkard. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. There it is. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were sanctified. That's past tense, positional. You were set apart in Christ unto holy ends. Positionally. Then the word sanctification is also used primarily in the New Testament for progressive. It's an ongoing growing and changing. So Philippians 1.6 would be, he began a good work in you positionally. He will bring it to completion. It will be a process. He's bringing it to completion. In all of our lives, if we're believers in Christ, he is bringing it to completion. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. Progressive sanctification. Another verse for this would be John 17, 17, where the Lord prayed, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How are we going to grow and change? Sanctify them by thy truth going to be through the word. If you're not in the word much, which oftentimes in counseling we find out people aren't in the word much at all, it's not going to happen. It won't happen much at all. It'll be a snail's pace. Progressive sanctification. Then thirdly, and this is at the end of the verse, we'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There will be a day when we're not fighting the flesh, the world, and the devil anymore. All that will be gone. You won't be tempted to sin at all. It'll be 100% worship of the Lord. You won't even have the physical body to contend with. You won't be around sinful people. There'll be saints and angels and the triune God. What a day. Paul longed for that. He groaned for that. 
to eventually be that perfect sanctification. We call it glorification. Either through death or Christ's return. Almost with Paul, you, you almost catch, he so longed for it that when he was beaten or stoned or uh, persecuted, it was like, okay, keep the rocks coming, you know, keep it, because this might be it. I might be able to go home and be with my Savior. Or he got sick with the Philippians. He said, I was sick near unto death. And he goes, man, I really wanted to go home. It would have been far much better to go home. But God healed me, and I'm here for you, Philippians. <laughs> my joy and my crown. He, you could just tell he so longed for that, and that should be for all of us. Lord, I really want to go. I want to be with my Lord and Savior. So perfect sanctification. All three are used that way in scriptures. Sometimes you have to look at the context of the scripture. Is it talking about position? Is it talking about the process? Or is it talking about the final end? Another verse for the final end or glorification is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, and it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. May he sanctify you completely. Finish it, which is perfect sanctification. All right, so again, depending on what passage you're reading, as to which aspect of separated unto holiness we're talking about. Now, I want to take a look at the... I'm going to only look at three views. Just a sample here of three different views of sanctification. So I just pulled them right out of here. Um, Some of them are very similar. A couple of the views are very similar, and you'll hear it... uh, So the first is, uh, as a sample, the Wesleyan view, uh, also known as Christian perfection. It believes that uh, there was a time where you said you trusted in Jesus and struggled in your Christian life, and all of a sudden there was this second work of grace, and I'll read it there, a second work of grace that catapulted the believer into a state of sinlessness. Now, the Bible actually does address that. It calls it death. (laughs) Right? We die, we're immediately in a state of sinlessness. But no, they believe you're still living, which is often called entire sanctification. Sin is defined as only that which is a willful transgression of the known law of God. Anything we do not clearly intend to do or are ignorant about is merely a mistake. So lots of mistakes every day. Uh, I talked to one person in one of my classes who who came from a school that uh, taught this Wesleyan view. And she said she couldn't even believe it. Her teacher said he's gone 21 years without sinning. Uh, You know, that... And she said it just really confused me. Uh, You know, because we're all dealing with sin on any given day. But if you just call everything mistakes, well, that was a big mistake. Uh, I guess you could say, you know, 21 years and counting, 
how terrible that is. You don't even appreciate the grace of God because we need a Savior every day. We, we bask in the fact that God keeps forgiving us and cleansing us. This is the Wesleyan view. Spiritual growth to them takes place after the second work of grace by increasing in good works. So just like that diagram there, you sort of plateau up there. I mean, you're just perfect. Christian perfection. Entire sanctification. And I just make mistakes here and there, but I'm just you know, walking with Jesus in a perfect way. You know, even the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life, I've not arrived I keep pressing upward. I've not arrived. He kept saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of all saints. And so this is John Wesley who wrote this, uh, put this view together. It's held by the Wesleyan denomination, the Methodist church, uh, even the Methodist seminary out here, Asbury. If you go to their website, look under their doctrinal statement, go down to sanctification, we believe in entire sanctification. Also, the Nazarene church believes this, holds to this. If you go to nazarene.org and go to their doctrinal belief, they'll talk about Christian perfection. There's a whole lot of the, the person's own will in this. So it's going to be very heavy on man's will rather than trusting in God's grace. And so you'll find if heavy in, I was a part of my salvation, so if I, that was true, then I could lose my salvation. Often referred to as Arminian theology. A very high view of man versus a very high view of God and the doctrines of grace. So the Wesleyan view. I, uh, I've read a little bit about John Wesley. I believe a, a godly man and very committed to the disciplines of grace. And, and I talked to a church uh, history professor because uh, I wanted to talk to someone who just, can you give me some background here why he thought you could be perfect? And he said, well, it's a few verses that they misuse in Scripture. Sort of like I'm, I'm a new creature in Christ, all has passed away, behold, all things become new. You know, well, positionally, that's true. But practically, we're not there. We're becoming more and more of our position. You know, positionally, you know where you're seated right now? He said, well, right here in Grace Fellowship. No, 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 no. Positionally, you are in the heavens in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're, we're on our way becoming who we are positionally. But they took position verses to refer to how we now live, and that'll trip you up. But also the church history prof said John Wesley never believed that he arrived up there at that Christian perfection. He never believed that he had arrived. And so I thought, well, why did he, wasn't he so strong on it, writing it? He believed it was possible to live up there. And what convinced him was experiences, not theology, experiences. So take a few positional verses and then look at some people. And some people act like, at least when you see them, they act like they're up there, like on Sundays. They may all come and they act like they're all up there. But if you live with them, 
right? If you live with them, then we know different. I mean, I thought I wasn't up there, but a lot more up there than I now know when I was single. I lived by myself. I had all the fruit of the Spirit. I loved myself, kind to myself, gentle with myself. (laughs) I wasn't impatient with myself. I mean, I, I was... I felt like, boy, I just, this is, uh, this is wonderful. And then I got married. And I really thought my wife, my dear wife, was bringing me down spiritually. I thought, boy, now I'm getting angry and impatient. I'm seeing things that I just haven't seen for, well, for 25 years. I mean, what, what's going on? And then little sanctification agents come along called children. Whoa. <clears throat> and the Lord just had to expose my heart. I wasn't up there. My head was up there, but where I was living, my feet were down a lot lower. And when the church history prop told me that, yeah, John saw different individuals who looked like they lived up there, yeah, but he didn't live with them, did he? Because it doesn't take very long to live with someone until you see it. They're not mistakes. That's just selfishness, and that's sin, and that's anger. You can call it other words, He's not angry. He's just miffed, ticked, passionate, stressed out. No, he's angry. But if you call it what it is. So anyway, that's, it's like living with people on Sunday mornings. Everyone's fine. I was with one couple who uh, was counseling a couple. And he was a deacon, and she sang in the choir. And I mean, it was all this, I look like a great, great couple. And then they came and asked for counseling. And were telling me that on the way, they argued and fought all the time at home. And even in the car, and their children were sitting in the back seat, he said, oh, we yell at each other in a car. And, and she said, well, go more than that. He curses at me. Yeah, but you curse at me too. Y'all are swearing at each other on the way to church on Sunday morning. Yeah. And then you come in, you're the deacon and singing in the choir and on a regular basis. Now, I'm not saying now on Sunday mornings, look around at people and go, boy, I wonder what their problem is. I mean, don't do that. <laughs> don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're fine. You're, you're not fine. You know, what's your problem? Don't, don't assume it's like a doctor who just sees sick people, thinks everyone out there is sick. Just be careful of that, but just not everyone's fine on that say they're fine. So that's the Wesleyan view. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Now, what may have happened if someone said, my life was just struggling along, and I mean it just took a turn and living for Jesus like I've never lived before. What might have happened? It wasn't a second work of grace. It was salvation. Maybe they were truly converted. So Christian perfection. Let's go to the next one. Now the W is silent. It's called Keswick uh, theology, Keswick view sometimes known as the higher or deeper life view, a superior level of Christ-likeness, sometimes called the victorious Christian life. And I'll read it there. A unique post-salvation commitment or enlightenment allows the believer to enter into a victorious and consistent life of obedience. The struggle with sin continues, but it is lessened significantly by the new truth that has been understood and accepted. Spiritual growth takes place after that primarily by a passive trust in the work of God. Appropriately represented, and you probably have heard this before, the slogan, let go and let God. 
Just let go, let God. So those are the, uh, the believer is to be passive. God is the active one. I am very familiar with this view. Uh, it, it came out of uh, the churches in 1850-ish, out of England, Keswick, England. And it was being taught in many of the parishes there of this let go, don't work at your uh, sanctification, let go, let God do the work. Some verses that were used is Romans 12, uh, verse 1, just be that living sacrifice. What do sacrifices do on the altar? They just lay there. Stop working and squirming around. Just lay there. Be passive. And in Galatians 2.20, you know, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not yet I, but Christ lives in me. Just, he lives. You just let go and let God. God will do it all. Stop working at it. One of the leading proponents of this view back in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s was the uh, president of the school where I attended and where Brad attended, uh, J. Robertson McQuilkin, who's now with the Lord. Uh, so he taught the Christian growth class. And I was saved just about a half a year, and I'm in this class now. And he says, now, let's just say, it was in the fall, he said, let's say in the winter, we go, all, all of us go up to North Carolina, this was in South Carolina, we'll go up to North Carolina to go skiing. He said, if we all went up there as a class, we would see, uh, if we just looked down at the ski resort, we would see a couple of things going on. We would see some uh, people over here with their skis, and they're trying to go up a little hill, one ski on top of the other, they're falling down, they're tripping all over the place, the bunny hill. And they're just working hard at it, but they're not making much progress. If we looked over here at this other group, they're just standing in a line. And this chair is coming down the mountain. It comes around them, and they just let go. And they let the chair take them up the, up the slope. And if you, if you looked at their faces as they're on the chair, they're smiling. They're having a good time. They're looking around. They just let go and let the chair take them up the slope. Over here, they're working at it. They're having, they're, matter of fact, they're, they're not real happy. Two ways that people think they can grow in their Christian life. You work at it, you just let go and let God take you up. And I'm thinking to myself, I was only a half year old in the Lord. I think I'll take this, uh, the chairlift. You know, let go, let God. So that's what we did, uh, the whole school. And it was a, usually a four-day conference, the Keswick Conferences. So the first night of the conference is on sin. The second night on the conference is your union with Christ. The third day or third night of speaking was on total surrender, consecration, the fourth day is how to be filled with the Spirit. Now that you're empty, now let the Spirit fill you and just take you up. And it, sometimes there's a fifth day on missions or service. So that's the layout of the conferences. And this was being taught uh, strong in the pulpits and parishes in England in the 1850s. And God raised up a pastor in one of those parishes who said, this is not biblical. 
It's not squaring up with what the scripture teaches about how to grow and change. His name is one of the, the names that Brad brought up in the first session that he's been reading an autobiography uh, on. J.C. Ryle. And he put together his sermons, uh, or someone did, and put them, packaged them together. And you can buy the book now called Holiness. About the first 180 pages of that book on holiness are his sermons to confront this teaching of just let go and let God. So the Keswick view, some of the names of people who uh, wrote and uh, promoted this let go, let God, this being passive as a Christian. People like Watchman Nee, R.A. Torrey, Andrew Murray, F.B. Meyer, Adoniram Judson, D.L. Moody, J. Allen Redpath, Major Ian Thomas, Oswald Chambers, one living today of current pastor Charles Stanley. There, there are, this is the most popular view of how to grow and change. Most believers, if you said, are you Keswick? They wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Do you believe in Keswick? They don't know. Never heard the word, never heard the term. Do you believe that you're just supposed to, God's supposed to change you? And you really don't have to do much about it? Yeah, that's what I believe. I hear that, I would say, 80 to 85% of the time when I'm counseling. You've got these problems going on in your life. What have you done about it? Uh, I prayed. What have you been praying? Lord, take it away. Take her away. Take him away. (laughs) Take the kids away. So you're just asking for God to do it all. Yeah. So you want God to obey for you. Well, he doesn't. God does not obey for you. He helps you obey, but he will not do it. And I'm telling you, for four years in Bible college, I was letting go, letting go, letting go, and it was discouraging. It's depressing. You begin to even wonder if you're saved. Because it's just the very lust and various things that are going on in your life just don't disappear. But you can't say that on the campus. So everyone's trying to look like they're living the victorious Christian life, but they're not. And when prayer time takes place, you say, so what's your prayer request? Unspoken. Unspoken prayer request. (laughs) How about you? Yeah, unspoken too. Well, just all kinds of anger, lust, the, the issues of the flesh were going off the chart. But you can't talk about it because you're supposed to be living the victorious Christian life. That's the Keswick view. Now I'm going to go to the third. This is the biblical view. (laughs) Sometimes referred to as the reformed view. Because the reformers all got looking at the scriptures. Look what the Bible teaches about how to grow and change. It's progressive. You can see this. it's, It's up and down, up and down, up and down. But there's a trajectory going up. If you look at it, the Spirit is taking us to be more like Jesus. A lot of the overt sins are gone, but oh, wow, in the heart and the selfishness and the pride and, and some of the things that are going on in the heart. Yeah, it's up and it's down, it's up and it's down, but it's 
gradually moving upward. I'll read it here. It's a lifelong cycle, and this is the Westminster, uh, I put that in there as well, the Westminster Confession, which talks about it. Uh, A lifelong cycle of sin, confession, repentance, forgiveness, renewal, and growth in our faith in Christ that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer himself who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing his efforts. Ah, it's a cooperative effort. I want you to see two passages on this. Philippians 2. If you'll turn there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12. So let's go to verse 12. He's writing to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have all always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, and the subject you is in there, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not work for it. Don't misconstrue that with our justification. You don't work for your salvation. Christ provided that. But work it out. This is like the fruit of repentance. Work it out. You say, well, how can I do that? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will, to give you even the desire to do what's right, and to work for his good pleasure. He will not only give you the desire to do what's right, the holy affections, but he will give you the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection power. He'll give you the desire and the power to do it. And he will even help you know what to do, which is the word. This is the will of God right here, the will that we need to know. So the Holy Spirit's given us God's will. He's given us the desire and the ability to do it. But he will not obey for us. We must engage ourselves in working dependent on the Spirit. Here's another passage. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 This is, again, Paul speaking here about Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Wow, that's heavy ministry. And he's after every person, not just groups. Every person. That's why small groups are so important. Every person. But how does he do this? Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, not Paul's energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. Do you see that? Do you see this working but dependent on the Holy Spirit? The Puritans called it holy sweat. Holy sweat. Some of you remember the Gatorade commercials where you drink it in and then you sweat it out. It's, it's that kind of concept is God won't obey for you, but he will help you obey. He'll give you what you're supposed to do and not do. He'll give you the grace to do it, the desire to do it, the power to do it, but he won't obey for us. And so you have, uh, if you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see this exercising. 
going on. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, where he says here to Timothy, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. See that word train? Uh, The New American Standard says exercise. I think the New King James does too. Exercise yourself for godliness. You do it. And it says it is of value. Uh, For while bodily training is of the same value, of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That word train or exercise is where we get our word. It's a Greek word of gymnazo, where we get gymnasium, gymnastics. And I'll tell you, you go into most gyms and gymnastic places, they're not all just sitting there. They're working out. And that's the concept. You work. You work hard. You work with zeal. But it's God, dependent on God. And how do I know it's, it's God helping me? Pray as you work. Lord, help me to do this. Help me to respond right by Christ. Help me not to give in that temptation. Help me. The more you pray, you pray without ceasing. Dependent work is the process of sanctification, of the biblical view. Now, I have here some thoughts for discussion in your notes. Many people who claim to believe the biblical view, nevertheless fall practically into the errors of some of these other approaches. For example, we may echo both the Wesleyan and the Keswick view when we seem to be waiting for some divine event that will take away the strongest pools of sin and eliminate the need for concentrated, spirit-dependent discipline and self-control. You can talk to a lot of Christians. So what are you doing about your problem? Just not much? Praying? They're, they're waiting for some divine event. In many ways, it's well, expecting God to just zap you uh, to be more like him. Number uh, two that I put there in your notes, we may echo the Wesleyan view specifically when we admit that we sin, quote, all the time, theologically speaking, but very seldom confess it or ask for forgiveness. And when's the last time you confess sin to God? Oh, well, was that a week ago, two weeks ago? Have you been living perfectly since then? No, I sin every day. We need to be confessing. That ought to be our life of confessing, repenting, renewing. When's the last time you confessed to someone else around you? Oh, it's been a while. I just make lots of mistakes. We need to be known as confessors. We acknowledge our sin. And there's great hope for that. There's great grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. We have a Savior we can go to. There's confession, and it's always a repentant confession. It's not just confess it. I did it. It's repentant confession. I'm turning from it, and I'm going to turn to do what God wants me to do. Otherwise, it's not a true confession, the way the Scripture talks about it. Number three... We may echo the Keswick view specifically when we, quote, let go and let God's word 
or let go and let the gospel. By thinking that hearing alone, just hearing the word, just sit under the spigot of God's word, alone, without doing it, without practicing it, will change you. Hearing alone deceives you. It doesn't sanctify you. James chapter 1. Hearers alone. If you just hear the word alone, and that's where it sits, you will get deceived. You'll think you're growing spiritually, but it's a pseudo-growth. It's a hearer and a doer. It's good to hear God's word, but we must be meditating on it and practicing it. Now, I put here, this will lead us into some key elements. And we'll, I'll talk about this, Lord willing, uh, tomorrow, about the uh, actual change process. And it will involve these areas. So, specifically, we're going to be looking at sin and guilt. Wherever you sin, there's guilt. So, sin and guilt, repentance and faith. Wherever there's repentance, there's, if it's true repentance, there's faith. Wherever there's true faith, there's repentance. And confession, forgiveness and covering, replacement, mind renewal, those are some of the key elements we'll be looking at uh, tomorrow. So you have a quote there by John Murray in his book on redemption accomplished. Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. I mean, it's just, you're going to grow in your love for God uh, and knowing what his word says, as Brad was pointing out in that first session, just being people of the book, knowing God's word, uh, seeking to live God's word out by the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you say, boy, one of those views is what I take. It wasn't the biblical view. I've been let go and let God has been how I've been trying to live the Christian life. Well, praise God that God in his providence brought you here to hear this is what God says and how to grow and change. It was like music to my ears that, um, when I heard the biblical view of the process of change. And it's important when you're counseling people to find out what they believe about how to change because they may not do the homework. They may not do what you say to do because They don't do anything else. God's supposed to do it. So it's important that we find out what their view is and help them towards a biblical view. All right, you are dismissed on a break now. And when you come back, I'm going to jump into some key elements of a methodology that Brad was talking about in that first session. Some key elements. We're going to cover two of them, Lord willing, in that next hour.